gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, the review segment for the Quarter Quell. I guess it's just episode 25. It's for June 6, 2014. Today we're reviewing both The Edge of Tomorrow and The Fault in Our Stars. Can you? Which one, one is the cancer that? drama? Which yeah. one is the sci-fi movie? <laughs> Which one is know. more preoccupied with death? Hard to say. It's, it's truthfully hard to say. I think we should start with The Fault in Our Stars because that is the movie with the cute kids in it. Hang on, let me go take a nap. Yeah, all right. Aww. So, David, you didn't see the Fault in Our <laughs> no, Stars because I, I, you're not I'm interested, or you just didn't have to. Yeah, I'm definitely going to stick around. For David's not interested reasons. yet. He totally is because we were both drunk the other night, and he couldn't stop asking me about Fault in Our Stars spoilers. So he wants to know. <laughs> spoilers it's one of those cases where I'm I'm interested in the movie because of my uh, is a love for 500 Days of the Summer, which this movie was written by. Although I have to say, and this they do share screenwriters. The uh, in the wake of the Elliot Rogers. Incident and wow, this the, is getting uh, dark. Okay, yikes. no, and then the not all, not all men, uh, then all, not all, not all women, uh, yes, yes, all women, women. yes, David. all women. Hashtag the opening uh, credits, that opening little like thing, whatever you want to call it, of the insufferable 500 Days of Summer, where they call that one girl a bitch because you know, implying that she was the inspiration for the story. I mean, it always played uh, as sort of this this uh, poorly handled tone setter of a joke and now it feels really repugnant all right uh, we're a little as off does track. Most of that movie. <laughs> we're no this I, is I definitely setting patches, this is setting the tone could probably speak to this as well i couldn't you you both could uh if the screenwriting duo has exerted the same hand over this material as they did well they avoided it in the spectacular now which they i did. think at least katie and i rather enjoy I like david i don't know where you, i don't think you stand well on that movie if I recall. I think the spectacular now is a hell of a lot better than five. Okay, that's that's right. positive. Okay. That's a story. So they they stepped in the right direction. Although I would yeah. actually argue Fault in Our Stars is not as good as Spectacular now. Oh, not even close. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Katie, okay. did you read this book? I did. If so, I tell us this what book. this movie I read is it about. The beach and I cried like everybody else. Everyone um, tells me it's exactly the same as the book. It's so. extremely similar to the book. It's very very faithful because I mean at least partly because it's got these legions of fans who would flip out if you changed you know the word that they say to each other to say that they love each other you know it's something that is like twilight level affection while also being a good book which is you know nice it's nice that people can allow that teen girls can have good taste sometimes which is of course is always true but you know people tend to overlook that anyway it's about these two kids who have cancer who live i believe in indianapolis and they meet in a cancer support group but is the kind of cancer support group where Mike Birbiglia is the leader, which is funny, and uh, plays the guitar, and the kids are kind of the sarcastic ones who get out afterwards and make fun of it, and they're very wry and uh, very smart, and they kind of strike up this friendship that they it stays platonic for a very, very long time as they kind of get to know each other. They're played by Shailene Woodley and Ansel Elgort, which is a real name. Um, 
she has some kind of lung cancer. He's got some, you know, he's in remission for something in his bones. They have a friend who has eye cancer who's like losing his sight. Yeah, I think he's so, plat- their relationship is so platonic. He gets cancer like blue balls of some sort. Uh, wow. Later. Okay. Zing. Spoiler <laughs> and also mean. There, I mean, I definitely have a lot. <laughs> I don't even understand. Is that a spoiler? <laughs> is that a coherent joke? <laughs> is it? What no, time I is it? I actually don't think it's a coherent joke. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's a story about kids with cancer that is not, I, I mean, you, you guys definitely would not have read these. There's this woman named Lorleen McDaniel. Are you familiar with these books at all? No. Okay, so it was like it was like Babysitter's Club era. So I remember these very well from elementary and middle school. It was always about like set in cancer wars. It was like soap opery where someone would oh, die. And it was the tragic story, and it was all about you know hope through adversity. And The Fault in Our Stars, the book and the movie are the kind of thing that admit that cancer kind of sucks, and being a teenager with cancer who isn't in school sucks. And Laura Dern in particular, playing the mom of Shailene Woodley's character, I think really carries a lot of the pain that comes with it. The movie doesn't. It eventually does go in for really high drama, like really intense emotions but for a lot of the time it bears it lightly like a teenager would you know just kind of being focused on not these bigger broader questions but your everyday life but Laura Dern kind of gives it a sense of weight throughout the whole time and I think stuff like her performance I like Shailene Woodley and this guy uh, at least in the flirting scenes as he kind of gets he has to carry more drama I think he kind of falls apart um, but the movie mostly is just kind of who is this guy Ansel Elgort he was her he played her brother in Divergent if I have never nor will ever see Divergent, would I know who he is? No. Uh, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. So that he's that kid. Um, but I think the movie is, I mean, it's directed by this guy named Josh Boone, who's made one other movie before that I haven't seen. Um, and it's very faithful. And the parts of the movie that are good are because the script is good and because the actors are good. And the parts of the movie that feel kind of thin or feel like they have too many montages are because it's directed kind of barely at all, which I think is almost a disservice to how strong this book is. Yeah, it's definitely a TV movie in terms of direction. <laughs> Damn, Patches. So this is a bad movie. It's um, not a bad movie. Okay, so this is a bad movie. <laughs> and it's um, it's difficult to talk about because... It becomes very emotional when you have two young kids talking about cancer and and nearing death. I mean, this gets very emotional. It has to, right? I mean, we we feel empathy for these two characters. Um, but it it's phony. It's manufactured. It is grief porn in a certain way. In that we just we're going to feel bad. We're going to shed tears for the these two characters' plight. And um, the problem with this movie is that this guy Gus that she falls in love with is a manic pixie dream girl, uh, but in the worst way possible. Manic pixie dream boy. Um, he is perfect. He has he always says the right things. He's inspiring her. He's a little bit of a jackass. Um, but we have to love him. He's just perfect. Uh, and he's, you know, pulls her out of her malaise and changes her life forever. She can't help but fall for him. And the whole time I'm watching him, I'm like, I can't wait for this guy to like stab her in the back or what's, what's his deal? Wait, what's, really? what's he's, what is he really up to? He's really? evil, right? Yeah. Because he's so perfect that something must be horribly wrong with him. Um, what, what other teen romances have you seen that you thought that was going to happen? Well, it's not trying. That's the thing. It's not trying to play by. It thinks it's better than T 
teen romances that have Does existed it? in the past. Yeah, because it opens by saying, you know, there are you know there are teen movies that can solve every problem with a Peter Gabriel song, but this is real. That's her opening narration. This is the truth. No, it's not. You're oh, lying. Narration? Oh no. Yeah, there's narration where she's telling you about how this is a true story and this is how life really happens. It's not picture perfect, and yet it is picture perfect for about an hour. I mean, the the whole. The actual narrative of this movie is Hazel is obsessed with a book that has inspired her, a book about um, a young girl suffering from cancer and dying, and she wants to know the answers because this girl dies and the author decided to cut off the book mid-sentence because that's how real people die, you know? They don't go on with their lives, and it's she's the obsessed. Sopranos, the Sopranos ending. Yeah, exactly. And, every, mm-hmm. and like the craziest of trolls, she has all sorts of theories, and she wants to know for sure what happened. So um, Gus, you know, with a few emails, for some somehow connects with the author of this book, who is a recluse. Or no, he's reclusive. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, he, they, and he lives in Amsterdam, and they're going to fly there. They're just gonna go there, and he and I'm. Make a wish foundation. Okay, but I kept thinking like, oh, he's making this up, right? Like he can't be this perfect. He can't just find this hidden author uh, with a few clicks of uh, of his computer, of his laptop. Oh, yes, he can. And and it's so strange, like where this movie goes and how little actually happens in the first hour. And you're just supposed to believe that this guy is the most perfect person on the face of the planet. That they can share their first kiss at the Anne Frank Museum. In Amsterdam, or the yeah, Anne Frank House, and and it's this is a true story. This is how life really plays out. So you have your first kiss at the Anne Frank House, and then everyone claps for you. Wait, you did not have your first kiss. Oh, I'm at the sorry. Anne Frank house? Yeah, well, no, I'm saying they did. I did have my first kiss at Anne Frank's house, but not everyone clapped. And then you got thrown out. Right. They were like, "Why would you dare make out where Anne Frank died? Did Anne Frank die in Anne Frank's house? No. That sounds like a yeah, horrible joke. That's horrible." <laughs> Um, I think, you know, there are definitely moments like that see, yeah. and like a bunch of pop montages and like videos. Oh my god. Oh, oh yeah, the yeah. M83 in this movie is egregious. Yeah. I mean there's definitely elements like that that I think are problems with the it's film. It's manipulative. I think, I think the moments the the parts of the story that are real are again about how this is how dying and being, you know, someone sick or being someone in a doomed romance is not romantic. It sucks. I mean, the parts of this movie that are super romantic are the parts that you're describing where everything kind of falls into place. But but it is romantic because they're like, it doesn't matter. That's we what can... a re- relationship when you're 16 is like because you're not fa- – like, if they didn't have cancer, they would not have real problems in their lives. And that's how this thing happens. And that's what romance is when you're at that age. And then these kids kind of get to this point where they're just – able to get to the real part of romance and then that's when things start to change for them. I don't really have a problem with it being a situation where these things can happen and they're perfect. For it just doesn't they've feel known each other for a couple months and they're 16 and when you meet someone you're 16 who you click with you just are so swept away by how magical they are. When you pull the rug from uh, under us an hour into the movie, you know, uh, you can you can have this twist where people are dying and we're going to be serious and like what does that mean for a young relationship? That's really interesting to me. And how they deal with it ends up being interesting. How they are okay with dying and you know, they're going to write these love letters to each other and how comfortable they become and how the important their final moments are. That's interesting stuff, but to pad it with like an hour previous of like the sappiest uh, most unbelievable romance of all time doesn't really work in in the actual Have drama's favor she's all that <laughs> yeah but that's 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 a that's a fairy tale this is not right it's it's i mean it purporting to be something part, different it's about 
you know, I mean, it's about how people there. I mean, there are people, kids with cancer going through this all the time. And this is kind of an outlet to say, like, this is what it would be like if you met that perfect guy. I mean, that's really right. the only fairytale element. More devastating, thing. more devastating is their friend who kind of disappears for part of the movie. He has cancer, something that's affecting his, his eyes. eyes yeah. And he has to he's about to go blind. And I'm like, Jesus, what is happening to this kid? What is his arc? This is played by Nat Wolf, who is in Palo Alto. Um, oh, and in Mission. My, yes, who is a good actor, and you wish he was more important, or like he was their sign that uh, of how cancer really, really destroys you or changes your life. Um, but he is another, he's another pawn in John Green's story, which it seems very faithful to whatever nonsense John Green kind of dumped into the the book version, which is just wow. full of like, let me p- tell you about this math proof that I find metaphorical or, you know, it's full of facts. I know that John Green is, you know, nerd fighter and he's all about digging up information and facts. And this m- movie is filled with that kind of stuff. It doesn't really make any sense why either character would be blurting these types of lines out, but they're just talking Wait, in facts really? every so often. I don't like, think so. Like you didn't, like, as a, Gus is not a studious like, guy. Here is my quote from, no, he reads the same, but he reads the book that she gives him. That's like the only book he's ever read. His other book is like an adaptation of his favorite video game. The guy yeah. is a moron. No, There's no way these two are falling in love. It just doesn't make sense. He's such an asshole. Talks. No. Yeah. I don't, I mean, obviously. He's so devious. He's so like. I did not click for you. So I mean, he's, I, he's constantly, he constantly has a cigarette in his mouth as some sort of metaphor for his life. And I'm like, you're a tool bag. Go home and yeah, listen to Creed, you asshole. tool bag thing. I Can totally would have had a crush on that dude when I was 16. That well, you're a tool totally bag. Tracks- yeah, sure. Here's Everyone's what's positive. a tool bag when they're 16. Let me be positive about this movie in our final moments. Um, Laura Dern is an amazing actress. I just started watching Enlightened, and she's phenomenal in that show. And here she doesn't have very much to do. She just has to be a great mom. Um, but to see her give herself over to that part, to be a great mom and to be in this situation where she's constantly on edge. Maybe my daughter's lungs are filling up with liquid right now and I have to rush her to the hospital. This could be the last time I ever see her. And, you know, at some point she's like, no, she's actually dead. And then her daughter wasn't dead. And her daughter knows this, this fact. Like, these are devastating moments. And this relationship is really scary to me. The fact that uh, a mother who knows her child will die not that, uh, not if, a when. And that that really hits hard in this movie for yeah, me. Yeah, I realized that I was old because it was the Laura Dern stuff in the movie that meant the most to me, not the <laughs> teenage stuff. But but the teenage stuff should matter. And I feel like there are indie directors out there. This is all on this Josh Boone guy. None of the scenes seem to be elegantly strung together or to be um, choreographed in a way that... There's anything natural about this world. It feels like a commercial. And that's a problem when you're trying to sell something as grave as having cancer or as, as just life-altering. It doesn't have to be grave. It can just be put connecting to people. And that's what it's really about, right? Bonding over this horrible fact and kind of breaking through that. And I never felt that. It's all about slathering on how horrible it can be or how magical it can be. And that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mistake to try to say that it's trying to say how grave something is because the entire appeal of the story, the reason people really cling to it, is that it's about something terrible that 
people can still be funny in the middle of and still make dark jokes about having cancer and still be the kind of people you think you would know. And I think that it gets some of that element because the dialogue is the same and because I like the performances and, you know, for what they are able to accomplish. But I do agree that a lot of other people could have directed this and brought something that felt more hefty to it without having to go necessarily like a dirge. David, you were going to say something. Sorry. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how uh, interesting the question was. I was just going to ask if, if there was a way to tell a story of two teenagers. Um, how would you suggest you tell a story of two teenagers uh, with cancer in a modern uh, romantic comedy setting? Do you think it's possible to do it in a way that doesn't feel so saccharine? I do James think Ponsel so. Let direct it. Well, I mean, you it's spectacular now. I mean, I feel like that movie's tone is would really be apt for. I think it has. Like I think there's two things on the table here. One, it matters that the guy, ha- the guy has to. Both parties have to be as vulnerable, as interesting, as deep. Um, Shailene Woodley. I mean, I'm on. I'm in her camp. There are people who do not like her, but her kind of, you know, off the cuff not really giving a shit about anything attitude that she seems to bring to movies. I'm for that. Like, that just makes everything more casual and more real for me. Like, sitting in a basement and just shooting the shit with Shane Lee Woodley seems totally possible. But Ansel Encourt as Gus... Elgort. Elgort. Who cares? Um, <laughs> he's, he's Dapper Dan. He's like George Clooney, James Bond. Uh, he's, he's swarmy frankly, um, but she falls for it. And so he is this, he is fiction. And that's a problem to not have characters who seem to be going through any problems. And then all of a sudden are, there's a big twist, you know, halfway through this movie and everyone has big problems and suddenly everything's emotional and there's, that's not elegant. And that's what it's and I, like to be, to be like for teenagers to like, and this is the are. importance, this is the importance of cinematography. I mean, let's talk about craft. This, this is, doesn't feel like a real place. It feels like the back lot. And yet it is shot on location in like Pittsburgh or something. This, this, it's everything's glistening and glossy in a time when everything should feel all too real and tangible. I think you wanted a different movie than they were trying to make and that book lent itself to, but that's not, I mean, that's not a problem. It's like, that's what I definitely wanted a different movie. (laughs) I, uh, I feel like the movie is fine. It is a suitable adaptation of something that was never going to be better as a movie because of the the language works and the way that, I don't know, the way that that story is told, it's told internally. I don't know. It didn't, it never really seemed necessary to me to make a movie of it. And this movie, you know, save a completely different director. I don't think was ever going to do it, but if you like the book, then maybe give the movie a shot. And if you like Shailene Woodley, if you're on her team, like patches, despite this, give it a shot. I'm standing at the end of tomorrow, and it promised me how far I go. I'm standing at the end of tomorrow. I've never seen such a view before. New world before my eyes. So much for me to explore. It's where my future lies. Today I'm standing at the end of tomorrow. The second movie we're going to be reviewing this evening or this episode is Doug Lyman's 
slash Tom Cruise's because that man is nothing if not an auteur. Um, all, all, I was going to say All You Need Is Kill, which was uh, what it was titled, what the book it's based on was titled, but it is called Edge of Tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow. Uh, and it is a, about a gentleman uh, played by Tom Cruise whose name is something – I think it's. I think his name is Cage, Lieutenant Cage, Cage, something Cage. Yeah, whatever. Um, Anyway, he is a media relations officer of the army in the near future when Earth has been overrun by aliens called Mimics. And uh, this is one of those movies, one of the better versions of the this insidious trend of movies that open with. uh, news footage, uh, especially when they. Why is that bad? Why Why do you not like that? It's just so lazy. It's such a lazy way of world building. Uh, I dig it. I, I always number. love to see people manipulate like real footage, news footage. Uh, but it's so laughable here when they cut in shots of like Brendan Gleeson who plays one of the. Okay, the it doesn't look like any of the other footage. <laughs> no, or no. You know what they use in this opening montage? People should spot this. It's either Comic Con or Can footage with giant posters of Emily Blunt like hanging up at Comic-Con, and then they use that Mm. as if they're hanging posters of this woman. For an $178 million movie, (laughs) you would think that they would be able to blend it a little bit better. Anyway, um, it introduces us to this world. Uh, Tom Cruise, he plays this guy. He he thinks that he's going to London to talk to Brendan Gleeson about a PR campaign, uh, and Brendan Gleeson accuses him of being a deserter. And forces him essentially into uh, to joining the the ranks as a grunt to go to the front lines, the beach of Normandy, where they're going to stage uh, Operation Downfall, which is the big fight back against the mimics. They finally started gaining some ground against this alien force after five years, and now uh, they're going to make their stand. And so he gets recruited uh, by Bill Paxton, who is drill sergeant from Kentucky. Uh, and you Wait, can imagine Paxton's what Bill. In this? Oh my oh, god! Oh yeah, whole and different it's, outlook it's, to this. He's going. He's going full. The full Paxton. Yes. Um, and uh, Tom Cruise is in full Steve Rogers in the beginning of Captain America mode. You've never seen uh, not Tom Not Cruise. as honest, and he's not such a no, do-gooder. No, no, no. He's quite the opposite. But as far as his weakness, his vulnerability, you've never seen Tom Cruise be this much of a buffoon in a movie like this. And he is dropped into combat, and he dies real good. And then, you know, smash cut, he's back at the beginning of that day. Uh, and so we enter a Groundhog Day-like series of repetitions where he uh, is constantly dying on the battlefield and returning to this one moment the day before um, and having to sort of figure out why that's happening to him. How, so what he's he aware that to... he's repeating? Oh, yeah. Very much and, so. Uh, and the movie, is it, it operates and unfolds very much like a video game. Um, I sort of said that it was uh, thinking of ideas of eternal recurrence, the unbearable lightness of being and whatever. I, I thought that it was sort of like a Nietzsche playing Gears of War. I mean, because they have all these giant mechanical exoskeletons that they ride into, into battle. Um, but it's very much uh, trial and error. I mean, it's like beating a level, learning the enemy's movements, learning what button you're right. They actually you they actually plot that out on paper. What moves do you make? Yeah, what buttons right. do you press? Who do you shoot where? <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Uh, he comes across Emily Blunt, who is the celebrated uh, hero. The the what do they call her? The the full metal bitch. The full metal bitch, which is a name <laughs> that she does not seem to appreciate. Um, and uh, and he eventually goes into co-op mode with her. Um, essentially <laughs> that's and, pretty uh, accurate they're playing a multiplayer yeah. they're online 
I mean, this is based on a, a Japanese novel. I mean, the, none of this stuff, is the relationships to video games, is in the least bit accidental. Um, and uh, the movie, which is leaps and bounds better than anything director Doug Lyman, who made Go, which some people seem irrationally nostalgic for, and this film's like Swingers and The Born Identity, uh, has always been a little bit of a middle brow hack. Never has he made anything remotely this cohesive and and effective uh, and skilled. I mean, the way that um, this movie pivots and the way that it uses ellipses uh, and with a great deal of humor to boot is really, really thrilling to watch. Tom Cruise remains uh, the greatest movie star on the planet, um, and there will be no argument on that point. Uh, And uh, up until the final boss battle where the movie makes one decision so fucking boneheaded that it not even not even in the boss battle itself the last beat the last (laughs) beat of the movie undoes pretty much everything that happens before it uh it's not like a plot twist or anything it's just it's just such a stupid emotional beat that it's it's so driven by convenience and not logic or emotion i mean it's just so uh, it's it does not destroy the movie maybe for david but no 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 it's just but it's just like yeah, because the movie's still there. It's the same as if like you reboot a movie and you're like, oh, but it's like, well, the original you love is always there. Yes, the movie it's not quite the same because you want to see this all as like one artistic whole, and the last ninety seconds is a part of the film, and you're not always just going to hit the stop button on your Blu-ray player <laughs> or whatever. But uh, you know, the the maybe that can be an element of control. The one thing that this movie's missing is interactivity. Um, so, uh, but yeah, up until those last ninety seconds, this is such a thrilling and uh, relatively speaking a original movie and as i remarked after seeing it um it you know within within the confines of a nearly 200 million dollar movie um before marketing um you realize watching something like this and and going through the joy of discovery while watching it and and the freedom the fact that it's not beholden to these sort of uh stubborn fan bases and 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 set uh mythologies that you realize like how much franchise culture snuffs out how much creativity it snuffs out of our blockbuster filmmaking um and that makes this as satisfying uh in its own right as anything you'll see all summer and it also there's no way that a marvel movie or something like that could ever give me this kind of pleasure i don't care how great the avengers 2 is uh the sheer sense of surprise and and twisting your brain and just making it's you, fun to have a know, movie that doesn't it. we don't know the structure from minute one i think that's the problem with marvel movies they're all plotted exactly have, the same you don't have every fucking website in the world chasing down every little nugget about this movie everyone ignored it and it made the experience so much sweeter for it well there's nothing to uh, cling to and that, and that's the wonderful thing i mean there's some big scale action in this movie. I found the opening battles to be quite exhilarating. This kind of like Black Hawk Down meets Gears of War, as you said, these giant mech suits and these big helicopter things fighting these spindly aliens that, you know, I haven't seen a design like that, at least in some time. Um, the, these tentacled beasts that, that move at lightning speed, just like the dynamics of that battle was frightening, intense. Um, perfectly executed but it doesn't really get that big ever this isn't a huge movie after these giant war scenes which i think helps it i I mean it becomes it's it's like a slightly more contained world war z i would say is the scale 
Right. And well, what's interesting, it keeps playing with its own genre because of how Tom Cruise's character, it learns about his ability to go back to minute one, uh, back to the previous day. Um, you know, he's, he, there's, I, I think this movie, uh, requires your knowledge of Groundhog Day in some ways to kind of blow past, okay, he can learn things, but over time he'll be able to pick up these ideas and we're kind of on board with those mechanics based on the movie Groundhog Day. And now we can push this conceit. We can push this even further. Like he can learn how to fight. He can become a fighter Uh, or he he knows where all the positions are uh, in a current day, but he can manipulate them. How far can he get in a certain day? If he takes this path, this kind of sliding doors idea, or, um, you know, in one, one given day, he'll go all the way in one direction. And the next one, he'll go all the way back. And then maybe later in the movie, he'll retrace his steps from beats in the first third of the movie. These, these just amazing callbacks. And we remember all this stuff the same way he does. And then playing with the structure even more, they'll sometimes skip those moments of learning the beats of a given day. He'll, you know, he'll be walking with Emily Blunt in a certain area of Europe and he'll say, oh, you know what? We've been here before. Don't touch that. You've last time you touched that you died. And I love that kind of stuff. These, these reveals that we've already, he's already been here. He's learned this world. Um, and you know, I, I, I thought about your comments about Godzilla, David, about being this kind of like post character or post, uh, yeah. What, what, what did you call it? Um, I think the headline was post-human. Post-human blockbuster. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about Godzilla forever. And for me, this movie is a movie about structure. Like, we know these characters well enough, um, but it's about the beats of a given day. It's about events. It's about that structure, the monotony over and over again, and how far it can push in either direction. Um, I, I take a little bit of umbrage with the Groundhog Day Quote. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. I mean, obviously, the cultural web is is thick, and uh, um, you know, it's it's complicated. But I think that really, this movie is so predicated upon uh, audiences' familiarity with video game mechanics that it really sort of leaves Groundhog Day in the dust. I think uh, it is not counting on people, an audience, a generation of viewers who are intimately familiar with a movie from more than 20 years ago. It is really and truly about game over screens and avatars and st- you know learning from your mistakes and people who can play the ins and outs of Dark Souls to hearken to a recent episode <laughs> of the show. Um, I mean, I think that's really what it's taking. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think uh, structure is a big part of what it's about. I think... Um, you know, I, there are so many different things happening in this movie that are really interesting to chew on. I mean, you can go the angle of looking at uh, Tom Cruise, the this guy who uh, is sort of immortal in his own right, um, grappling with his own mortality and, and the sort of divide between his human life and how his life is going to his sort of presence in culture and. There are, uh, you know, the value of different lives is something that uh, the movie grapples with as it becomes increasingly nihilistic. I mean, there's this one character who Game of Thrones fans will recognize who uh, Tom Cruise is responsible for saving and then eventually just sort of says, fuck it. Like, I'll let him get crushed by this giant crashing spaceship. Um, And uh, there are a lot of interesting things. The movie's not, you know, it's ultimately uh, takes a coward's way out, but it's also... um, not afraid because of how it can erase the whiteboard right. well, I, to do I, things that movies would otherwise be afraid I also of. like that it can be a war film and then it can be kind of a road movie. We're going out on an adventure. We're going to accomplish this mission. And then it can be like a caper 
film. You know, at some point they have to infiltrate a certain place and he knows all the beats of that. Um, it, it's constantly shifting gears in terms of genre as well. And Tom Cruise is fully capable of doing it. He's he's suave enough. And, and like you said, what's really astonishing is how, you know, off kilter he could be in the beginning. He's not, he has no idea how the world functions, uh, including when he's not time traveling at all or resetting the world, you know, when he's just a buffoon and he wants to be a coward, he wants to escape the war, or when he's being dropped into the war for the first time and watching all these people kind of rough him up uh, and him being the real fish out of water. Uh, the whole beginning is he can't get hit the safety off his gun and he is just stranded in the middle of all these explosions and alien attacks. And it is, it's hilarious. The movie's really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's, as you said, the kind of like nihilist sense of humor at a certain point. Um, which which shares its its soul with Groundhog Day again when you just have that fuck it attitude, um, and and that's when true revelations come for him. Um, I I really dug this movie. I was kind of surprised. I I also mentioned to you, David, and I don't know what people think about this. I'm more curious um, about listeners' response to something like this. You know, this movie comes out 70 years after D Day, uh, to the day, uh, June. Sixth, And uh, I, I wonder if when you dabble in military and war, if you somehow need to comment on that. Like if, if your movie is about America going to war and being kind of clumsy or not really knowing what they're doing, because um, the or not even America, the global war efforts in this movie are totally up their own asses. They have no idea what they're doing. Um, it, do you have to say something about the military and war and about history? Um, I don't know if this movie really does, and I, I would, I wish it could push itself in that direction at some point. I would like a little more out of that um, theme, but maybe it's maybe it's not necessary. David, I know you do not necessarily agree with that, but um, I, I feel I like there's something be- there that I, I was missing for me. I don't disagree. Uh, and truth be told, I have found, I just remembered while you were talking, I don't know why, about, I think I was because I was talking to you about it earlier, seeing the Age of Extinction theater standee with, with Optimus Prime riding, riding a dinosaur. Yeah. And that's all I can think about now. It's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Uh, but I do think uh, what Patches is saying about uh, the movie's comments on war, I think it, it, it is indicative of how many things this movie has on its brain um, and how its premise allows it to explore so many of them simultaneously. Um, And I think uh, it's just one of the additional things that elevates it as far as a satisfying experience so far, so stratospherically above the (laughs) Marvel schlock. Well, it has a style. Well, you were mentioning, you were mentioning Doug Liman. Um, He, he, has a certain way of shooting that's just like he's all over the place. It seems like any idea that he could shoot, he went and shot it and got in the can. It's just like the array of angles, he, the coverage he gets on every moment so that no repeated moment uh, or, or actually some repeated moments match each other over and over and over again to feel that monotony. But he's always approaching these revivals of Tom Cruise's character in different ways to kind of push the the dynamic. Um, uh, push the drama in a different way or the comedy or something. He's doing that through angles. I, I, he's, this is an accomplished film in terms of filmmaking, I would say. But I know you're not a Doug Lyman fan. 
Give him well, a little I, credit. I, Aren't you the jumper I, defender, Patches? I, I, actually, that's well, David and I were talking about this before. <laughs> jumper is phenomenal wish fulfillment because the premise is just like so you're like, oh, I wish. I mean, even just like on a daily basis, like if I could fucking jump to Midtown, you know, I would. Uh, my life would be so much, so much better. Um, but I think as a movie, Jumper is really, really bad, and also. Um, but I, but something I, I admire about Jumper at the very moment that it becomes interesting. Jumper is just crazy, like all the stuff it's accomplishing because Doug Liman himself is so crazy, like going out and shooting just like five seconds of Hayden Christensen rumbling with Jamie Bell in the middle of Times Square, which was totally illegal, and you could tell that they were on the ground shooting it just for like kicks. Um, but to have that kind of fly through the screen in that one moment. And I feel those kind of visceral moments here in Edge of Tomorrow. I, I, I mean, I don't know the stories behind how they shot these different sequences, but I can imagine that Doug Lyman's penchant for just kind of shooting all sorts of crazy shit who, no matter where he is, I mean, the shots in this stuff well, are pretty they phenomenal. They built him a, a giant beach <laughs> in a sound studio. Is that true? So, uh, yeah, yeah oh. in, uh, in London. So he could shoot whatever than, the hell he wanted. For yeah, however long. Than, it sounded, I mean, from the article that I read, I think it was like The Hollywood Reporter, it sounded like that wasn't his ideal decision that he wanted to shoot on location somewhere. Um, but uh, so I don't know if this movie gave him the same opportunity in that regard. But yeah, I mean, he definitely does things a little bit differently, I think, often to the chagrin of the money the money people in Hollywood. I don't always think the results bear out the, you know it being worthwhile, worth the stress to work with him, but he... He gets really to kill Tom Cruise in so many different ways. It's... Yeah. that That's um, bliss. Seeing Tom Cruise have his face blown off, it was a real real uh, joy for me. And I love Tom Cruise. Wait, I, before we wrap up, I did want to give Emily Blunt props, because I feel... I don't really get why people don't like her, or that why she hasn't... Who doesn't like kind, Emily? I, well, that's the thing. Do people love her? That's I'm trying I to figure this out. have feelings about her for the most exactly. part. The, the other exactly. Day, the other day, I told... Katie, that I, my theory on why Emily Blunt might not be as famous as she deserves to be is because people think she's kind of basic. I don't know if I, you would agree with that, Dave. I mean, she's she's maybe you know she's basic for um, a Tom Cruise uh, female counterpart. Although I think that she's marvelously cast here. I think I she's think amazing. If, uh, I think if she you kicks so Emily much Blunt, ass. In real life, if she was in your circle of friends, you would uh, not think her basically no. in the least bit. Well, she <laughs> she just, but, you know, I think people gravitate towards actresses who either have, who are hot messes or who are like shiny perfection, like Jennifer Lawrence, who seems to be on all wavelengths. And Emily Blunt's just like nice. She's just cool. And she's married to Jim well, from The Office. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. She, that, that's just so cute. And that doesn't work. Like that does doesn't get you the spotlight, I guess. You know, she does her job, and if there's ever a movie about a uh, guy trapped in an infinite loop by strange technology, she is ready to go. Yep. <laughs> and, she has uh, her sword, uh, and she'll be there. <laughs> and that's that's what she does. Um, but she's uh, uh, she's always very good, and I think does what the movie uh, the movie calls for her. I don't know if she's ever really gotten. You know, I guess like the young Victoria, which I never actually saw. Um, but I don't think in a, in and uh, she's gotten the opportunities that she may need to really establish herself as a leading lady. But I tend not to really. You need care to see salmon things. fishing in the Yemen again. I would yep. highly, <sighs> highly all recommend that salmon, it. All that Yemen. That does it for today's fighting in the war room double review segment. 
Uh, we'll be back talking to you next week about some other stuff. It's just it's surprisingly good period for movies. We're still a few weeks away from the next Transformers, which is when we get to really. Hey, hey it's like hey. a black hole. It's sucking me watch, in. Watch I'm your like, I, mouth. I, I, you have, I, yeah, I guess you have a reason to be excited. All the robot riding dinosaur action you could possibly want is coming <laughs> in a few weeks. I, I, the standee. <laughs> In theaters is better than most movies. I look at it I've and I think seen. the death of cinema. I actually, that's that's what the symbol I look is. At, for me. I look at you and I think the death of cinema. All right. Watch my short film. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet at places like Grantland and Vulture and Vanity Fair sometimes, where Katie hey. works. And I put it all on mattpatches.com and I'm on Twitter. At Mr. Patches, and we didn't talk about it today, but Obvious Child comes out this weekend. I think it's on VOD, so you should definitely rent it. We might talk about that next week, but um, Obvious Child, Obvious Child, Obvious Child. Way of the future. Way of the future. Way of the future. Show me the blueprints. Show me the blueprints. Show me the. Show me the blueprints. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. You can find me writing for uh, The Dissolve, The AV Club, Little White Lies, some other fun places, um, and uh, on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair, where sometimes we deign to publish Matt Patch's insane rantings. Sometimes he writes good things for us. You never know. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-E-C-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week.